You can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2, 22-23. This morning as I was uh, in worship, I was drawn to a song uh, written, we're not quite sure the date of its writing, but it was written by Bernard of Clairvaux. He lived between the years of 1091 A.D., and 1153 A.D. Listen to these words. The title of the hymn is, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. A meditation on Isaiah 53, 5. He, has pierced, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Bernard of Clairvaux writes, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. With grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss, till now was thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe me thy grace. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Let's pray. Righteous Father in heaven, you are the Holy One. We would have no access to you except that you made a way. And that way is the one and only way, Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we've just heard in this great hymn, may we never outlive our love to thee. Oh God, if we ever, ever fall into the trap of forgetting who you are for us in Christ, the satisfaction of your own wrath, the payment for our sin, the Redeemer of all who believe. If we ever, ever, ever forget, Lord, take us home. Do not let us live in such a way as to defile that holy sacrifice by calling ourselves by a name which, which we have no honor and love for. Lord, let us not be apostate, but save us. We know if you were to withdraw your grace for even a moment, we would be fallen, we would be ruined, we would be undone, we would be unlovable and unsavable, but you have granted your grace and poured it out through Christ who in fullness dwelled in the flesh and now has returned to the right hand seated on a throne and is pouring out His Spirit over mankind. 
calling us to repentance. Your blood still speaks, Lord. Your blood still speaks. Lord, may we remember, too, that when the charges are brought against us, your elect, it is your blood which speaks louder than the charge and quiets our accuser and tells him he has no place in our in our case, that he has no place to stand, no leg to stand on in your holy courtroom because your blood speaks louder than, our, than any condemnation that was due us. Oh, Jesus, help us to worship you through your word this morning. It's in your precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Who killed Jesus? Who killed him in this season that we call Easter? This Sunday before we celebrate resurrection, it's right for us to think about this question. Who killed him? Acts chapter 2 holds the answer. Peter says, men of Israel. Right? And then he launches into a sermon based around the life of Christ. First of all, we see that Jesus was a historical figure. He's not a fairy tale. He is a man. Christ Jesus of Nazareth. That title, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. It could be taken two ways. It could be taken as I take it in the sense that it's speaking of his home city. Where he grew up, the village. It can also be interpreted interestingly as Jesus the the branch. Which would tie him to Jeremiah, right? 23, the shoot. From Jesse's root, that promised branch which was to come. I take it though as a title of his growing up. It points to him as a historical figure. This is not a fairy tale. The title is of his earthly home, Nazareth. He could have called him anything, mind you. He could have called him Lord. He could have called him Christ. He could have called him Son of Man. He could have called him Son of God. Creator, Sustainer, Savior. Peter could have said Jesus, the Creator. Jesus, the Redeemer. Jesus, the Sustainer. He could have said any of those things and they would have been right. But his desire in this moment is to point to them that he is God in the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth. Don't mistake who Peter's talking about. And Peter says to the people of Israel, don't fail to understand, this is Jesus. He could have called him any of those names scripturally. There are names all through the Bible. But this name, this title, is the one that points to his humanity. Jesus of Nazareth. The title points not only to his humanity and his historical nature, but it points to his humility. Jesus of Nazareth. According to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, listen to this who, though He, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a human title, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a historical title, telling us that He was a real man that lived in a real village called Nazareth. 
This is a title of humility. He is a man. We often fall into the trap of thinking of man as this elevated creature, which we are. We're not just the last link in the chain of evolution. We are exalted above the creation. We are to have domain over the, the, the other creatures that were created. But in comparison to God, He must stoop down low to become like us. We are humble. And He was born not only in humble flesh. The Bible says He was not beautiful so that anyone would want to look on Him. He probably wasn't the best looking kid on the block, you know? I don't know and I don't want to venture into a description of Him because I think the Scriptures purposely leave that silent. But I believe He was common. Not extraordinary. Nothing in His appearance would have drawn people to Him. He was common. He was humble. He came from humble stock, didn't He? A carpenter. A carpenter. A mere laborer was His earthly father. And his mother, a probably 14, 15 year old little Jewish girl. He was from common stock. He was humble. He grew up in this village and we know very little about his years growing up, do we? We do understand that in the Hebrew world he would have worked alongside his father Joseph. He probably built some houses in his day. You know? And nobody thought it extraordinary because he was humble. He was common. He was a laborer. Building a new house? Yeah, Joseph and Jesus are building it. To us, that's all striking. To them, it's just another day in the park. He was human. He was historical. He was humble. This title Peter gives him here in this beginning of his message, or this section of his message, points to that fact that he was a historical, human, humble, born of common stock, and not even in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, you know. In the Roman Empire, Jerusalem wouldn't have been that big a place anyway. But to the Israelites, Jerusalem was the, the king's city. And that's where a king should be born, right? In a king's city, in a palace. But no, this Jesus of Nazareth, a despised little village. I, 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 I imagine it in my mind's eye as a little place that has a stop sign in it, you know? One stop sign town. <laughs> a backwoods place. Not where all the learned men of his day lived. Not where all the great priests came from. No king had ever come from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, the people said about him, right? What good has ever come out of Nazareth? It was a common place. And it was despised. And yet, Peter proudly proclaims, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. We come to our second point in this message. He's not only, Jesus was a historical figure, but Jesus was shown to the Jews by God. That word attested means shown. In the Greek, it should be translated that way. Erasmus mistakenly said in his interpretation of this word, gave. God gave him to you. 
But that's not, the, that's not the sense of this word here. The sense of this word is he showed him to you. He put him on display in front of Israel. By what? By mighty works or wonders. Signs. God made Jesus' divine nature obvious to everyone by working miracles, wonders, and signs. The word translated here, miracle, means works of power. The word translated for us, wonders, speaks of inspired amazement and awe. The word here, sign, means divine revelation. These are not classes of miracles. Don't, don't mess up. Don't, don't miss it here. Peter's not saying he worked some mighty works and some wonders and some signs. This is, in a way, a technique of layering truth. He's saying the same thing three times. He wants to get his point across. A sign is a miracle. A miracle is a mighty work. A mighty work brings wonder and awe. He's, in a sense, repeating himself to them. Now, John's favorite title for these miracles is sign. That's what they were, a sign to the Jews. When you take it as a sign, if a man showed up in your little village and he was raising the paralytic who never walked and giving sight to the blind man who had never seen and raising even a dead man from four days in the tomb, That'd be a sign, wouldn't it? You would think like a flashing neon sign. This guy ain't your average carpenter. There's something special about him. Matthew chapter 4, we're in our home uh, worship time with our children looking through Matthew. And I came to Matthew 4, the last paragraph, and it says that Jesus went about all of Galilee performing many miracles and wonders in their presence, healing the paralytic, casting out the demons, even giving sight to the blind. See, these are the mighty works which God showed him to the world. God made his divine nature so obvious that it should never have been questioned or missed. Peter wants everyone to think back, his audience, think about it here. I didn't give you a lot of setting. I jumped in for time's sake. But this is at Pentecost. This is the gathering of the Jewish nation. And there's thousands of people hearing Peter speak. Thousands, okay? Don't get caught up in the tongues, whole tongues debate and tongues uh, thing here. Let me just put that at rest. Peter spoke, I believe, his own language. And everyone in the audience heard in their name, native tongue. And that's what the text says. He was speaking, and they were hearing in their own native tongue. And therefore, they thought, what are all these Galileans up there speaking in these different... How, how does that happen? Can you imagine? These people from all over the world are there. They're all professing Jews, and they're hearing it in their native tongue. It would have been okay if they had heard it in Aramaic, but they're hearing it in their native languages. And not only is that the case, but here you have these... Macedonian Jews standing next to these Syrian Jews and they're all hearing it in their own language. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So that's the setting here at Pentecost. Jesus' Spirit is poured out over the disciples and now they're speaking to them. And, and when they speak, these men are hearing them. 
And they're being accused of being drunks, right? And he says, it's just the third hour. It's 9 o'clock. Come on, get real. We're not alcoholics. We're not drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's the power of the Spirit. It was prophesied to you by the prophet Joel that in those days the Spirit of God would be poured out over the sons of God. And and even the daughters would prophesy. And he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. And then he says, men of Israel. So there's thousands of people gathered here. And he says to them, men of Israel, this Jesus of Nazareth, who God attested to you by mighty works, wonders, and signs, he did them in your presence, and you know it is true. He wants them all to understand. Jesus has not been some secret uh, um, figure who stood over in the corner and talked to a few people. He's talked to thousands. As a matter of fact, the whole countryside knew of his great works. The Bible tells us he built a tremendous following. He fed 5,000 men. Probably 20, upwards of 20,000 people were gathered at one time to hear him teach. He was not some local yokel backwoods preacher in a tent revival with a few five, six people showed up. Thousands showed up. When you see the political uh, men of our day, especially Barack Obama, I thought about that, I saw him yesterday, and he's got 20,000, 30,000 people gathered. That's Jesus preaching at one point in his ministry. 20,000, 30,000 people walking around on the countryside to hear him preach because of these wonders he was doing. So Peter says, this what is a secret. God didn't do this in just in Nazareth. He did it in all of your presence. He attested him. He showed him to you, his divine nature. God made Jesus' divine nature obvious to everyone. He put him on full display. Peter's confident that they know about these miracles. It's not that they might know about it. He, he says, you know yourselves that he did these miracles. Third, we see that Jesus was killed by God, by the Jews, by the Romans, and by you. Who killed Jesus? God, the nation of Israel, lawless Romans, and you and me. He was killed by God there at the beginning of verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Ain't no mistake about it. God killed Jesus. The word here for will, bully, definite plan, fixed purpose in the text. Foreknowledge Prognosi. From the word prognosco, foreknowledge. Beforehand, he knew. Prognosis is the Greek here. It wasn't some whimsical murder that occurred. It was God Almighty putting his son to death on that cross. Intricate 
fixed, definite plan which he intimately knew and understood. What can we say about God and his plan? I'd like to say a few things here. God's desire before creation was set out in a definite plan. The timing of that plan is so crucial. And I want you to understand this morning that God did not wait until after Adam sinned to then say, I've got to do something to fix this problem. God, before the foundation of the world, before he moved and acted to create anything or anyone, said, I desire that my son shall die to redeem for himself and elect people. God's desire before creation was set out in a definite plan. Secondly, God's plan is unchangeable. The word there, definite, fixed in the Greek. It didn't change. See, he did it before he created, then he created, and it didn't change. Adam did not interrupt the great mind of God. There was no hiccup in the plan. It did not fail in any point. It was perfect. It was written before creation. It's unchangeable. Third, God's plan is focused on His glory. God's plan is focused on His glory. Hold your place in Acts 2. I want you to turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. I think it is so important that we gain this aspect. It's one lost on us in our modern churches. Ephesians chapter 1 Paul makes it abundantly clear that God's plan is for His glory. Beginning in verse 4. I'm going to emphasize these words to you. If you underline, I want you to underline these words. In Him, through Jesus Christ, purpose of His will, bully, the same word that's in Acts 2, Praise of His glorious grace. In Him, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Him, in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. In Him, He starts in verse 11. According to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. In Christ, might be to the praise of His Glory, he says, to the praise of his glory. Let's read the text together. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in, in Christ might be to the praise of his what glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His, what? Glory. And I tell you, God's plan is focused on His glory. God's plan is focused on His glory. Fourth thing about God's plan, His will, as we see in Acts 2. 23. God's plan is focused on the regeneration of all things. Romans 8 tells us He's going to re- bring a spirit of regeneration throughout the creation. Matter of fact, the creation now groans waiting on this regeneration. God's plan is sixth focus. His plan includes the evil deeds of man, but His plan is not evil. That is so important. God's plan includes the evil deeds of man, but his plan is not evil. Let me explain quickly with a biblical example. An Old Testament example. And then I'll use this example of the cross. First, Joseph. Genesis 50. Joseph to his brothers who are groveling at his feet, begging his forgiveness. What does he say? God sold me into slavery and God has placed me in this moment so that many might be saved. Who sold Joseph into slavery? I thought it was his wicked 11 brothers who threw him in the pit. And that's who sold him. Joseph says God did it. So there's no blame with Joseph's brothers. No. There is blame in Joseph's brothers. How can that be? We ask. Because God has said, you shall not murder. And what was their intention? To murder their brother. So did they sin? Yes. And were they following the plan of God? Yes. And was God selling Joseph into slavery to bring him to power in Egypt? Yes. Yes. God's will includes the evil deeds of even Joseph's brothers, and yet God does no evil. You say, how can that be? Because Joseph's brothers' intention was evil. They wanted to kill him. They hated him. And at the same time, God, using that hatred... Sold him into slavery for good, not for evil. God's purpose was not evil. God's purpose was good. What was God's purpose? Joseph said it, didn't he? For the salvation of many. God was working His plan when those evil brothers did an evil deed and tried to murder their brother and then sold him into slavery. That was God's plan to do what? Bring good to many. God's will includes the evil deeds of man. And yet he cannot be charged with evil. 
Acts chapter 2 now, in our example of the cross, Peter says, by the fixed plan of God and his foreknowledge, he's going to go on to say, you crucified Christ at the hands of lawless men. Right? And I say, God did it. And you say, how can God do that? It's evil to murder. Jesus wasn't guilty because God's intention was that many sons be brought to glory. So he used the evil intent of those evil Israelites and Romans to bring about the great salvation which we enjoy. God's will, never, never forget this, includes all evil deeds, and yet he is not evil. Seventh, we see in his will, that, or in his plan, God's plan was intimately known by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That word foreknowledge carries more than just a knowledge idea. In the Scripture, it carries intimate knowledge as an idea. Genesis chapter 5 is where we first see this word and in, its, in its Hebrew form. And what it says there is that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Not to become too graphic, but you who are in the room understand that that no is not a knowledge of who Eve was. Neither is it a mental knowledge of what she looked like or what her character was. Adam knows her in a way that is very intimate, therefore she conceives a child. And what God is saying in this text through Peter is that I intimately knew all of the details of my son's crucifixion. I didn't just know facts. I was involved in it. I was intimately involved with it. And it wasn't hidden from my son. Jesus didn't come to the earth thinking, I wonder what God wants me to do. He came here knowing what God wanted him from him and expected from him. And he obeyed it perfectly. God's will is intimate. And it's known through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was killed not only by God, but he was killed by the Jews. Peter clearly says, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Those you That you in this text is Israel. Now, Peter charges all of Israel with crucifying Jesus. He makes no exceptions. I don't even believe he accepted himself from this statement. Peter crucified Christ too. John... The apostle, Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, all of them crucified Christ. You say, but they didn't scream for his crucifixion. No, but they didn't speak up on his behalf either. None of them stood with him when he was charged. None of them disputed the lies that were told by the high priest and their servants. They knew the truth, but they didn't speak up. You say, well, not everybody at the Pentecost feast was even at, probably even there at that day when they were crying, crucify him, crucify him. No, but they knew of Christ. And they did nothing on his behalf. Not one person out of a whole nation stood up for his character and said, this man is blameless. He doesn't deserve to die. Not one. Not even his own mom. Not even his own mom. Not even his own brothers. They stood by and allowed him to be crucified. 
And be sure there were many in the crowd in this, when this message is preached by Peter that did cry out for him to be crucified. John says in the first chapter that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. They hated him. The Jews rejected their Messiah both actively and passively. The Jews also crucified Christ because they were sinners. For those sins, Christ had to die. Therefore, it's their fault that he had to die. God crucified or killed Christ. The Jews themselves crucified Christ. He was killed by the Romans. You say, where do you get that? Because they're not mentioned here. Yes, they are. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That word lawless means godless. It means those who have not received the law. They didn't have the guts to kill him themselves. They put him off on Roman men who were lawless and godless. And they killed him. They crucified him. Judas gave him to the guards. The guards gave him to the high priest. The high priest gave him to Pilate. Pilate passed him to Herod. And Herod had a good time in his court jesting at him and making fun of him. But then he sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate offered him to Israel. And Israel cried out for him to be crucified. And the Romans nailed him to the cross. Peter leaves nobody uncharged. He says, you men of Israel, God, you men of Israel, and the Romans killed Christ. That's what's so senseless about that anti-Semitic spirit which had filled the church early on as if the Jews were to blame only. The Romans were at charge too. He was cursed because of the method of his crucifixion or his death. Deuteronomy said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So the Jews, bloodthirsty as they were, wanted him to receive the ultimate curse. Hang him on a tree. Give him no dignity. He was killed by God, by the Jews, by the Romans. And lest we let ourselves off the hook, you and I killed him too. Have you ever denied Christ? Before you accepted Him as your Savior, did you ever scoff at Him, laugh at His Word, in your heart maybe even? You were afraid to do it out loud, but you said, this is, this is hocus pocus. This isn't true. Well, the song has it right. Your voice cried out that day, Crucify Our sin was laid on him on that tree. And we killed him. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one would even dare die, But God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We killed him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You killed him. You hung him on the cross. John 10, Jesus says in verse 11, 
No sweeter words ever spoken in the scripture. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said that about you, church. You killed him and yet he willingly laid it down. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who killed Jesus? God, the Jews, the Romans. You did, and I did. And what I'm asking from you in response to this message is that you'll look at him. You see, because your sin and Satan says it's too harsh. Don't look at it. Don't contemplate it. Remove it from your mind. It's too hard for you. Forget it. You lost man. He's saying even now, don't buy into this. Don't believe in this Jesus. And I'm saying to you, look at him. Look at him. See him hanging there on the cross, despised, rejected, in agony. All of that for your sake. All of that so that he may become poor for you. The wrath of God will be satisfied either by Christ on the cross in his death for your sake or you will suffer the wrath of God in hell for all of eternity. And His wrath is infinite and can never be satisfied. Which means the worm in hell never dies and the fire is never quenched. It's eternal. So lost man here today, hearing this message in your heart, knowing that you are a sinner, I'm saying to you, look to Christ and Christ alone and let Him be for you a sure pavement. And ransom from your sins. Because if not, when you die, you will pay. And you will pay for all of eternity. And saved man and woman, I'm saying to you today, do not despise him and forget him on that cross. Look at him. Look at him in the eyes hanging on that tree for you. And the next time that you say, I cannot speak up on his behalf, let it be a witness that He paid for your sin and has set you free. He's bought you and ransomed you to the Father. Let His words call you. Hear Jesus from that tree calling out to all of those who were bitten by the venomous viper of sin. As He says in John 3.15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You've been bitten by the venomous viper of sin. You are dying in your sin and all that must be done to pay 
is that you look to him who is on that cross for you. You're not asked to do any work. You're not asked to plead your own case. You're not asked to offer your own merit. You're asked and called and begged and pleaded by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning they're pleading, saying, Look at my beloved Son. He is lifted up and stretched out for you. Look to Him and you'll have eternal life. There's no work. There's no merit. There's nothing to be done. He has ransomed and paid the full price and you're set free. Simply believe. Men of Israel, church, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man shown to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that that God did through him in our midst. This Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But I want to say in a precursor to next week's message, 24 says, God raised him from the dead because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That's the message for Easter Sunday. God raised him up from the dead because it was not possible that death should hold him. I'm calling you, church, to remember how great a salvation you have. And I'm calling you, lost man and woman, look to him in faith and be saved. Let's pray.